You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 9. Today, we're sitting down with landscape photographer Rob Hirsch to talk about his creation process behind his new book, which is called The Nature of Yosemite, A Visual Journey. We also chat about connecting with nature, staying curious in photography, using photography as a way of advocating for conservation, and so much more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with today's guest, Rob Hirsch. But before we roll the interview, let me just give you a brief background on Rob. Initially trained as a field biologist from UC Irvine, Rob is now a full-time landscape photographer with an intimate relationship to the natural world. His passion for Yosemite started early with annual visits to the park with his family. As a field biologist, he worked on a variety of projects for California State Parks, USGS, and several private firms. His love for traveling and exploration has led him through Africa, Central America, and the Western United States. Photography was initially a means to document his work and travels, but it soon became his primary focus. His work has since been featured in international competitions, calendars, magazines, and gallery showings, and he leads customized small group photography workshops in Yosemite and the surrounding Sierra Nevada. Rob's debut book, The Nature of Yosemite, A Visual Journey, was published in 2019 by the Yosemite Conservancy, and it combines stunning imagery of the park with educational text about the natural history, which we dive into a bit today. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Rob Hirsch. So Rob, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brenda. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. Me too. So I already gave the listeners uh, your bio in the introduction, but I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about your origin story, since I think your your path to photography is a little unusual and likely influences to some extent how you approach your photography. So where did you start and how did you get from there to here? <laughs> um, yeah, see if I can see if I can answer that somewhat succinctly. Um, I uh, I'm a biologist, naturalist uh, before being a photographer. Um, uh, that was my career for for, for quite a while. Um, and kind of my first forays into photography, uh, was after college. Well, I guess, I guess to backtrack for a second, my, my first, my first introduction to photography was actually in high school when I nearly failed my high school photography class. Oh, man. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a funny story maybe for another time, but uh, it just wasn't my focus at the time at all. I was into sports and a bunch of other stuff and, and really didn't have any artistic interest or bent. And I had to get a friend to help mm-hmm. me, you know, get this portfolio done to graduate high school. Um, yeah. So I really didn't have any passion or interest in it early on. Um, but then after college, I took a, a backpacking trip with a buddy of mine uh, to Africa for, for six months. 
And, oh, wow. um, and it was, it was by far the best thing I've ever done in my life. And in prepping for that trip, we, my dad lent me his, his Pentax, um, SLR film camera and, uh, that with a, a two lenses. And I think we had 60 rolls or so of film. Um, we traveled backpack on Africa for six months and, and, wow. and just made a lot of images and, and of landscapes and wildlife. You know, those are things I knew I was into. Um, uh, but just had a lot of fun creating those images and, and probably one of the biggest moments that made me push further towards photography was, uh, we spent a considerable amount of time in the Okavanga Delta, uh, in Botswana, which is mm, one of the most mm -hmm. remarkable places anywhere in the world. Yeah. And, um, we only expected to be there for maybe five or six days. We fell in love with it, ended up spending three and a half weeks there Wow! and just saw everything. It was phenomenal. It just made tons of images and uh and i was really i was really stoked on those images i thought they're gonna be great and, you know until i got home and and right around the same time franz launting published his book on the okavanga delta and, oh, uh, and i was looking at his book and i'm saying <laughs> i was in the same place trying to take pictures and man my stuff looks nothing like this guy right <laughs> it just was so incredibly um uh empowering but also you know humbling and yeah. and um and and gave a really good incentive to get better and uh and so when i came home uh i was working as a biologist for for quite a while and uh starting to capture images of the critters and the landscapes i was working with um mm -hmm. just to document them and and being a pretty competitive athlete growing up i i'd look at my images and and uh, and i'd look at the books and things that were out there and i just was like i should be able to do better than this i should be able to do better than the kind of the stuff i was taking and just pushed it a little bit further and tried to get better um never really with the idea that oh, i want to be a professional photographer you know that was really never the goal it was more of yeah. well maybe someday down the road if my images are good enough a little supplemental income or something like that but the concept right. of, of actually my life living depending on selling images was just a very bizarre concept at the time um so sure. it wasn't as much me pursuing that per se but just trying to capture the best kind of images that I could in the places that I was working. Um, Where were you when you were doing your biology work? Uh, in Southern California. So I, I, uh, I grew up in Southern California um, and uh, went to UC Irvine as an undergraduate and then worked for a variety of state parks uh, in that area and then USGS for a while um, in some state and national parks in Southern California. Um, and then a little bit up into central California, in the mountains, but that was kind of most of where, where that work was done. Gotcha. And, uh, and, and so when we moved up to Groveland, um, and, and started our business mountain sage there, we, uh, committed a couple rooms towards gallery spaces to give it a shot and put some images on the wall. And, and, uh, 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 I look back at the first maybe 10 or 12 images I put up on the wall and I'm thinking to myself now that was pretty bold because they definitely weren't of the caliber that I would consider strong right now. And I probably wouldn't even share those images, but there were a couple that were, that were, that were, that were you know, pretty high quality. And, and one of them was a winner of a nature's best competition in, in, in one of those early years. Wow. And so that kind of got the momentum rolling and um, helped light the fire to pursue relationships with different organizations and lodges and folks in our area outside of Yosemite and start selling prints and starting to teach workshops and, and just kind of one thing led to another such that, you know, several years later, it's kind of what I was doing most of the time. Um, 
You know, I'm not one of those photographers yeah. who's like in the field 150, 200 days a year or anything like that. I kind of pick and choose my moments. And there's a lot of stuff I like to do outside of photography. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is the way I generate most of my income and, and professionally, it's, it's most of most of what I do. Um, did that answer your question? <laughs> I yeah. sure I got for a while there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. So how at what point did you decide, OK, I'm going to sort of put my my uh, science hat aside and and focus fully on. Uh, photography and and your other business that you have with your wife, which I understand is kind of a really that's a really cool idea that you have there. It's what is it called again? It's a cafe of some sort, Mountain Sage. Yeah, it's called it's called Mountain Sage, and uh, it's a combination of a lot of different facets. the The super cool thing about it is the property that the the business is on, right outside of Yosemite in, in, in this town of Groveland, is my wife's great grandparents' homestead from the eighteen fifties. Wow! And so her family homestead there, and the, the the house that the business is in was built in eighteen sixty seven, and there's hundred year old grapevines out on the property and a super old barn. So it's got this phenomenal history and character associated with it. And that's really why we moved up to Groveland was to, was to put our biology careers on hold basically and start this business in Mountain Sage where it is now it's developed into a uh, inside the space is, is gallery space for my photography and then also a coffee and tea house. And then outside in a couple acres is a plant nursery and gardens and a music venue and space to hold community events and gatherings and things like that. So it's become a real wow. kind of a community hub where uh, folks just come and hang out, lay in the hammock garden um, and gather to chat or have a coffee or, or oftentimes we put on more um, um, committed kinds of events out there. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Uh, hammock garden. I love the idea of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd say that's certainly the most uh, popular uh, a part of, of the business is, is the hammock garden. It's a great yeah. spot where people coming out of Yosemite exhausted after hiking half dome or something like that. They go lay in the hammocks underneath the old grapevines and, and, oh. and relax for a little while. It's super fun to watch. Sounds amazing. So how did that all fare out with the pandemic and everything? Uh, you know, like a lot of folks, we pivoted a bunch. So, you know, we, we, one of the things that, that I think is probably true of, 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 um, photographers in general, but also folks that live and work in rural communities is diversifying Hmm. and doing lots of different things. Um, and so, um, uh, uh, a lot of things have tapered off in some degree with just the general obviously tourist traffic and stuff like that coming out of Yosemite and, and having the cafe, but we do a lot of other things as well. My wife does water conservation projects all over the state. Um, that's kind of her focus now. And so that stayed really busy and, and, um, and just kind of pivoted to doing what we could do with the time that we had. Um, but it has definitely had an impact. I'm obviously not teaching any workshops and haven't in a while. Um, and even accessing the park was quite difficult. Um, Mm. but uh, I feel like there's always, plenty of things to keep busy, whether it's thinking about another book project or going through the really huge files of past images that we probably right. all have to go through <laughs> as photographers, you know, yeah, plenty of things exactly. we should be doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's shift our gears a little bit to photography more specifically. So, um, you know, many photographers tend to be drawn to a particular type of outdoor photography, such as the grand landscape or the intimate landscape, macro, wildlife, or plant life, and so forth. And you seem to incorporate all of these subjects into your work. And so I was wondering, why is that important to what you are trying to express with your photography? And what are some challenges you face by casting a wide net like that on what you choose to photograph? 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I don't go into it thinking I want to capture all of these images for a particular purpose. To be honest, I just like photographing all that stuff. Like from day one, when mm. I was taking pictures of things or, or making images, I was intrigued by macro subjects and i was super into wildlife early on and and intimate scenes and the big grand landscape so it wasn't as much me trying to do something with it at least early on um it's just yeah. i've always enjoyed all those parts of, of photography and i've always respected a lot of the photographers that 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 shot all those different types of 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 work and not to say that that it's interesting now and, and something i'm thinking more about in doing some of these podcasts i never really thought about this stuff until started chatting about it with folks but um you know it, it really has become the point where you know even among landscape photographers there are folks that really focus on uh you know intimate landscapes using a long telephoto lens or just black and white or things like that everyone has their own right. little niche and their own passion of what they like to do and that's fantastic yeah. for me personally i just like it all like i like a little black and white i like a little bit of the big grand landscape and and uh, it it just um more than anything else just uh filled my passion to explore all the different realms that are out there in the natural world um, mm -hmm. now in trying to do so to part your second part of your question, it does create a lot of challenges in, in a variety of ways. Um, it, it, I think it's both a blessing and a curse, I guess the, uh, uh, in going out there when you can make images of anything, you feel like you should always find something to make an image of. Like, you know, right. I've got, if I can, if, if I can shoot macro to grand landscapes and wildlife anything in between, if I'm out there and I can't find something interesting to photograph, it's like, well, what's wrong with me? I should be able to, you know, to yeah. be able to find something interesting there. And so maybe there's a little bit of that. I, I carry a little more gear than most people do probably. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, I, I want to have that coverage and I want to be able to switch from one thing to the other kind of quickly. Um, I, I, I like it because at the same time when I was saying that, that it's challenging when you sometimes can't find something, I, I oftentimes can. So if I'm, if I'm, you know, whatever, sitting in front of a big, beautiful grand landscape and the weather isn't quite cooperating, I'll just go take a little walk and find something else and oftentimes find a little intimate scene or, or that, that's intriguing or sitting there waiting for the landscape to change, uh, some wildlife will cruise by. Mm -hmm. um, and so being able to um, uh, switch paces and change over and photograph something else is, is just super fun to me and always having kind of um, uh, bigger opportunities. Um, one other thing that, that I think is interesting in terms of shooting so many different subjects, which I think is getting more and more rare these days. Like I don't think I see as many photographers um, that try to shoot uh, kind of across the board is that I probably don't have a style. Like I don't necessarily know mm. that anybody could look at my work and say, Oh, well that's a Rob Hirsch image or something like that. Whereas folks that really focus on a, one of those different aspects might develop a style that's very uh, recognizable. Right. And, uh, uh, and I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad. I guess it'd be kind of cool if somebody could look at some of my work and say, Oh, well, that looks like a, you know, my type of image, but it might, it's a lot harder when I'm shooting so many different things so regularly. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I find it hard because, um, you know, to, to try to keep all of the different possibilities open in my brain when I'm out shooting, sometimes I find that a little distracting. And so 
I generally will be like, okay, well, today I'm focusing on waterfalls and streams, you know, and, and that's sort of where I'm focusing my eye. And I start to see compositions when I'm just focused on a particular subject or today I'm looking for abstracts, you know, because on, you know, I might not see the abstract potential if I'm focusing on, you know, a different thing. Um, but I'm with you in that, like when I'm out, it's, it's also nice to just, just keep it wide open and whatever presents itself is, you know, what you can, um, enjoy and and photograph. And so, yeah, I can see that being a challenge when you have the ability to photograph all of these different types of subjects, how to, uh, sort of narrow down your focus in a way so that you are capturing all of those potential opportunities. Yeah, without a doubt. Sometimes it does feel uh, almost a little overwhelming when there, you know, it's, it's a beautiful and there's beautiful opportunities. And there's so much out there. Uh, sometimes it's hard to kind of focus that vision into one of those elements. And I, um, I guess I've gotten so used to it now that it just it kind of flows for me where I just don't necessarily think about it. I just kind of shift oftentimes from one thing to another based on the conditions or how I'm feeling or you know, whatever else is happening there at the time, yeah. um, you know, as much as I love, you know, and sometimes I go out with certain things in mind, like, you know, I'll go out to one of my favorite, you know, hidden, more unknown grand landscape viewpoints in Yosemite. And, and that's kind of what I'm going there with maybe that, that vision in mind, because there's certain weather patterns or conditions that I think will be interesting for that. At the same time, I go out plenty of the time and and I might find these situations even more rewarding when I have nothing in my head that I can yeah. grab, grab my, my pack, my gear and go walk along the Merced river and, uh, and just go look for stuff. And, uh, that is just super fun yeah. and, and opens up the door for any possibilities. And it's not always productive. I'm not walk away, not even capturing image, but the, but just that open slate, um, is really fun. And, and those kinds of images uh, for me personally, I think can oftentimes be, considerably more rewarding mm-hmm. than the killer epic grand landscape when all the conditions come together because um, they're more challenging sometimes to photograph well and to create a really compelling image. Um, so I find a lot of, of, of both value and, and, and gratification in, in that kind of photography. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I um, sometimes like to think about it in terms of finding the image rather than making the image, you know, I, that it's it's an explorative process. You know, it, it's you're you're sort of putting on your investigation hat in a way and and looking and exploring and, and trying to notice things. Um, and and that leaves open the possibilities rather than um, knowing like, oh, I'm going to go shoot this grand landscape. And, and, you know, that's my bucket list item, <laughs> you know. Totally, totally. And, and everyone's different in terms of what what works for them. So I don't want to disparage anybody's sure. yeah. anybody's workflow or what they're happy with. But but I what you mentioned there I think is so key that that inquisitive nature, like the 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 drive to check it out from different angles and and poke around and find kind of cool stuff. I think that is one of the hallmarks and really one of the most important baseline driving factors for uh expressive photography. Mm-hmm. Um, and people finding their own path. I think that's super cool. And I, I like what you mentioned there. Cause I think that's, it's a big part of the way I work and, and I like to see it in other folks as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's possible because of your science background that you have that. I also have a, a science background. And so, you know, we're sort of trained to be asking questions and be being curious and that sort of thing. Um, 
But I know there are people who don't feel naturally curious and that sort of they feel a little intimidated by that. And so yeah, any ideas or any suggestions on how uh, someone could try to develop that sense of wonder or that sense of curiosity when they're out in the field and and not just feel uh, sort of like, well, this is the shot I need to get. And I'm done. But how to sort of um, spend that time really trying to open their eyes to these different types of uh, subjects or compositions. Boy, I wish I could have like a brilliant answer to that because, <laughs> you know, that's a key thing in my just in general, you know, thought process. I, I and I don't want to get into people's individual psychology because people go out there for different reasons. But but I would love it if if generally speaking, folks became more connected to the natural world by caring more. And I think possibly the the easiest way to develop that greater Connectivity is is information and knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, uh, this is kind of coming from from my perspective. But the more I know about a place, whether that be the um, um, the, the 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 history of it geographically, geologically, the biological history of it, or the cultural natural history of it. Um, uh, the more I know about those things, the more interested I am in them. So, mm -hmm. you know, before. If you're going to a place, maybe you do a little background research on, you know, how the landscape was formed, how the right. glaciers worked and operated. To me, that would drive the curiosity. But I can't speak for everybody, right? I don't know yeah. if that really helps everyone else out. But 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 information, I think, is a is the first step towards um, um, uh, wanting to dig deeper and. Um, uh, 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 do more research and, and gain, gain, gain even a deeper understanding and appreciation for the place uh, that you're in. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great idea, great suggestion. And that sort of uh, leads us into your book, which I'm very excited to talk about, which is called The Nature of Yosemite, A Visual Journey. And I've been really enjoying reading it. And it's not just because of the incredible imagery of Yosemite that you have in there, but it's also how you decided to construct the book is also fascinating. So it's unlike any other photo book that uh, I've come across in that you've um, included essays from biologists, naturalists, and other scientists and educators. And, and in these essays, they're providing uh, valuable insights into the natural history of the subjects that you were photographing. So uh, what inspired you to create a book like this? Yeah, well, thanks for those kind words, Brenda. Um, there, there are there are an awful lot of words in there for coffee table photography books. So <laughs> I appreciate you getting through and reading all the essays and stuff. That's really the point of it, and 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 to kind of give a a background um, uh, synopsis of how it came to be. Uh, as I was photographing Yosemite over the first several years, I. I um, it always in the back of my mind thought I'd wanted to do a book, but really wasn't sure how that would manifest or how, what form that would take. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously there's so many amazing Yosemite photographers out there and, and both predating me and concurrently that, that, you know, far superior photographers than I am um, and have amazing bodies of work. One of the things I always thought was a little different about what I had at the time and what I was developing was a really uh, broad spectrum of images of the park covering mm -hmm. intimates to grand landscapes, flora, fauna, front country, back country, all seasons, and really a grand overview of the park. 
Uh, and at the same time period, and, and, and even before that, when I was working as a, as a naturalist and biologist, and I oftentimes give slideshows, presentations to Sierra Club groups, Audubon groups, or school groups, that kind of thing. It was very obvious to me that people were far more engaged with what I was talking about and inclined to retain the information Mm -hmm. uh, of the, of the program when I was showing pretty images up there rather than just standing up there and, 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 and yapping in front of everybody. Right. Um, and, right. and so it was really clear that, that photography had a, uh, a powerful, uh, opportunity to help people connect with things. And so that kind of became the broad general vision, which is utilizing photography as a vehicle to help share pertinent information and that's both in terms of of you know when you're looking at an image the text might um, be directly related to what you're looking at the questions you're asking yourself when you're looking at that picture and the text might speak to that um, so this the idea is that the is that the, is that the text um, follows the the imagery to 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 teach about points but then also that the imagery helps to turn the pages so the people will be, you know, picking up the book because they really want to see some some photography of Yosemite, but then they'll actually learn something by by reading the text. And so we did a a lot of work to try to find um, both the right length of the snippets of text, um, the parts that I wrote, and in the essays, um, and in the content, so that it yeah. was both engaging, both long enough that that enough information could be dispelled, but not too long as to lose readers' information. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's there's a lot of folks. I mean, the 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 the, the folks that wrote those essays are uh, most of them are, are actually really good friends of mine, um, and are some of the most phenomenal naturalist, biologists, educators, and writers. And just so excited to have them a part of the project. They were into it, and uh, I think it really helped to um, fulfill the goal and the mission of being something more than just. I mean, not to say it's just a book of pretty pictures of something bad. That's also wonderful, but I really wanted to do something more meaningful from 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 my my uh, from my background. Yeah. So when you were um, trying to pick out the writers for the book, um, did you provide them with the images ahead of time, or did it was it more like, oh, could you please write an essay on the geology and and then or whatever topic it would be, you know the leaf litter was is one that's coming to mind right now fires you know stuff like that those topics did you come up with those ahead of time for them to write or was it more okay given their background what would they like to write about that would fit into the context of the pictures uh no i i kind of drove it all so so i i um uh kind of really put the outline of the book and all the essays in, in my head um over a period of time um and those essays were driven by because it's a pretty eclectic mix of stuff in there, like the essays from, you know, broad um, processes like the water cycle and how that operates to the geology of Yosemite to individual critters. And and the things that drove those topics were uh, either something that was uh, in particularly compelling and interesting about Yosemite, the Sierra Nevada. Mm-hmm. Uh or a critter or an organism plant something like that, that, that I thought was, was absolutely, you know, even, even more intriguing than, than the typical, um, or just general things that I thought people should really understand and know about. And 
so I had those ideas in my head with most of them, knowing that I had images to support those, most of those, um, those essay topics. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, it's funny, you should mention the leafleter one, because most of the time I came across the topic and then I found images to help support the topic and then went to the author with some ideas. I didn't tell them what to write, obviously, but I just gave them, you know, an outline of what I was hoping they would write about uh, with a handful of images to give them some, some, um, some context. Yeah. Um, but the leaflet was funny because I came about it from a different perspective, from a, the opposite uh, angle where, you know, I was looking at my images over the, for the book or possible images for the book one day. And I kept seeing these, images I have of, of falling leaves and, and leaves in the water, leaves on the ground. I'm like, well, that's a really important, highly uh, uh, underappreciated uh, system of biology of how leaves decompose and all the, the ecosystem processes that are happening there and how important it is that gets so often overlooked. And so yeah. the images help to drive that one. And, you know, once I decided that I, kind of you know, went out there and found some people that I know that are amazing naturalists and found Pete Devine, who I've known through Friends of Friends, to write it. And so once I had those topics, I either had somebody already in mind that I thought would be able to write well on that topic, or a couple of times I just got referrals from friends of mine like Jack Laws, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote the foreword of the book, who's one of the preeminent natural historians uh, in California, phenomenal educator and written seven or eight books. Um, you know, he helped me direct me to a couple of folks that I needed to write the other essays when I didn't have somebody in mind to do it. But that's but great. All those topics were definitely driven, driven by me um, that I thought people should understand, know about. Yeah. Yeah. It's very comprehensive. <laughs> um, so the, the commentaries that you wrote and include with your images, I, I feel make the the reader or at least I did as the reader. I felt like I was right there with you when you took the image. Um, and so I was curious, do you take a journal out in the field with you to take notes as you're photographing or is that all just from memory? I, all, you really all from memory. Yeah. I don't, I don't take notes. I, uh, I never, I've never been really good at that at all. Even yeah. when I was trying to learn my film camera way back when I should have been taking notes on apertures and shutter speeds to learn all that stuff. And I would just get a gestalt, you know, get yeah. a feel for how to do stuff. <laughs> Um, uh, rather than write all that stuff down. So no, it's more from memory. And, you know, I, I, there's plenty of things I forget, you know, but, uh, uh, for some reason, those moments of time being out there, uh, become so entrenched in my memory that I can just, I can relive those moments very easily, uh, almost all the time that I'm out there in the natural world. So it's pretty easy to, to bring those, those pieces, um, uh, of the of the experience back and and that was a really big part of it and so in in doing the book with the Yosemite Conservancy a you know, great organization that published it it was important for us to not only have the information biologically out there but but to have a sense of connection with the book I mean it's one thing to write a textbook right and to put all this information out there but sure. it's hard to engage in that unless there's a you know a, a tighter um, 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 uh, connection and want to be there. And so a lot of those personal stories and, and anecdotes um, are to help, hopefully help the reader feel present in the scene. And that's, you know, to kind of circle back onto the book and, 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 and the purpose of the book. Um, that's really it is to help the readers feel more connected and understanding more of the natural world um, 
to hopefully care about it more. And I always feel right. like if people care about the natural world more, um, they'll do more about it and we'll become better stewards of the land, right? We mm-hmm. all depend on the natural world on so many different levels. Um, and the more we understand and realize that and the more we care about it, the more likely we are as humans to become better stewards of the land yeah. that we all depend upon. And that's really, in a nutshell, for me, is what the book is about. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping people get out of it more than anything else. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more uh, on that, uh, you know, ethic that you're holding there that that, you know, the more we value and appreciate and respect nature, we will want to, you know, make better decisions about how we're spending our time and our our resources and all of that and be more mindful with how just in daily life, you know, not necessarily when we're out, you know, on vacation at a at a place and making sure we're, you know, disposing of our trash appropriately and that sort of thing, but on a much deeper level of how are you going to integrate this love and respect for nature, knowing that uh, we we depend on it and it depends on us to take good care of it so that, you know, we can continue to uh, be on this planet, <laughs> really. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. That's exactly. I mean, I, I totally agree and I appreciate that we kind of share that uh both similar background and philosophy um, with the natural world. And, and uh, um, it's an opportunity to help a lot of folks that may not feel as comfortable being, you know, out there in nature, um, develop that sense of of connection and and maybe even inspire them to get out there a little bit to check things out. And and I think that that in and of itself is a, is a, um, a promising aspect of it. Yeah. Well, I really do appreciate the, the essays that you wrote and, and your little snippets of of what you were experiencing in that moment, because it definitely comes through in the image, but also just hearing, you know, what you were personally feeling. Could it, it could be the breeze, it could be, you know, the snow on your face or whatever sort of sensory thing that you would bring out into those experiences uh, just helps add even more depth and color to that experience. And it feels like I, I could feel your love and excitement for being in that moment. <laughs> so oh, I that's fantastic. It. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. No, I love hearing that. That really just that made my day. Made, made all those painful days of writing and rewriting and editing and all that stuff worth it, which I don't enjoy nearly as much as being out in the field photographing. So it's nice to know that somebody's reading it and appreciating it. So Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so for for people who are considering making a photo book of an area that they absolutely love, do you have any advice for them on how to get started on a big project like this? Um, research, you know, I think I think on so many different levels, um, um, understanding what they're hoping to do with it. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways people can do books these days and it's kind of cool. Self-publishing is an amazing opportunity for people to create their own books and, and, um, uh, 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 just opens up so many opportunities. Having a really strong vision, I guess, would be one of the main things. Like, like, what do you want to do with the book? Like, Mm -hmm. like, you know, is it, are you trying to, um, 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 just feed people's, brains with 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 beautiful imagery that makes you know their own um mind wander or are you trying to use it for some other maybe greater good or other purpose 
Um, but having some idea of a vision with what you're trying to do with it is good rather than, you know, just putting a bunch of pretty pictures in a book could be great. And it could be a nice on a coffee table book, but some kind of integrated vision for how it works together and keeps somebody engaged from start to finish, Mm. um, is, is probably valuable. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm an expert to speak to this because I've only done one book, right? right. Um, yeah, but still, yeah. Uh, there's some folks that I could probably recommend to you that could speak to it way better than, than, than I can. Um, but I, you know, for me, that book project had been mulling about and stewing in my brain for a long time. It yeah. wasn't just me in a week saying, okay, I want to do a book. Boom, here it is. Like <laughs> I had been, it had been like brewing for a while. And so it kind of organically came out and I'm, I'm working on other new ideas for other books. And so I'm doing those a little more expeditiously. Um, but, but giving it the time to grow and think about it rather than rushing something is probably be a valuable way to, because um, there's just a lot of stuff out there now and doing something that's, that's, not just different, but, 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 but has value um, both to the photographer and to the audience that they're trying to get it in front of yeah. uh, is, would be a good thing to think about. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your creative process when you're, when you're out in the field. We talked about this a little bit about, you know, connecting with the scene and being curious, but um, I wonder, you know, could you tell us a bit about how you approach compositions when you're when you're looking at a scene, what are you sort of drawing your attention to and looking for when you when you're trying to find a composition? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd say what, one of the things that 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 I always try to do when I'm out there in the field is try to identify what's unique about that particular time. Mm. Um, and that could be a series of, of, of weather conditions or. Um, or just what's going on, on the ground. So like, for instance, um, uh, uh, say during the winter, um, there's, there's might, might, might be fresh snow, but there's not usually water flowing in the waterfalls or creeks or things like that. Cause it's all frozen. Yeah. Um, but if I'm out there and, and there's a combination of fresh snow and water flowing, well, that's a really unique series of circumstances that I would try to incorporate into some kind of interesting image. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that could be in a similar vein, the transition of seasons. I love it when fall hits winter and you yeah. get that juxtaposition yeah, yeah. of something that's out there. Uh, so I, I really uh, tangibly and and, and um, maybe intellectually try to identify what is unique um, and compelling about that particular time that I'm out there in the natural world and, 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 and try to bring that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, something else I try to do is I, 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 I try to, I wouldn't say I work slow, but, but, but really, um, you know, if you see a cool set of trees, rather than just jump right in and start shooting them, I'll walk around for a while. I'm going to scope it out, you know, unless there's amazing light right then that you got to take advantage of a killer lighting condition. If it's not going to change any, any short amount of time, I really try to uh, look around from all these different perspectives to, to see uh, where I want to focus my attention. I know in, in teaching works, a lot of folks will, you know, get to a spot, boom, set the tripod, start shooting right away. And uh, I find for myself a slightly slower approach um, and wandering around and taking it all in and, and, and trying to look at the subtleties and the different angles and approaches of light really help to um, narrow that, 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 that vision 
um, and bring out what I'm trying to do. I actually, I don't shoot a lot of different compositions. I might be different than a lot of photographers in that uh, when I find something I like, I'll, I'll work on it heavily, but I'm not shooting it a million different ways. Like I'll walk around and spend the time until I dial in, you know, a composition, a couple of compositions I really like, and I'll work on those hard, but I tend not to shoot a ton of different permutations of that. And again, everyone's different. Some folks that works really well. Uh, and I think that, that, that for a lot of photographers that are, that, uh, are either getting into it or finding their own vision, uh, trying a lot of different, um, interpretations of a scene would be helpful to yeah. Yeah, yeah. see what they like for their eye. What's most impressive for their eye and looking at those on the computer is great. I just, I have so little patience for post-processing and looking at images. Now. I would rather <laughs> really spend my time and, and getting, I, I probably shoot more like a medium format photographer with a digital camera than I do like a digital photographer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so are there any sort of compositional, uh, elements that you are particularly drawn to is it you know be it shapes or lines or textures or or things like that all of the above and i really i i i you know there's so many amazing photographers out there that are truly amazing at teasing out those exact elements textures and lines and shapes and i i i you know i feel like so many of them far surpass my ability to do that but i very much enjoy it like i love lines of deciduous trees you know or mm -hmm. or uh, things that, that that i'm always drawn to when i'm out there are i think maybe the juxtaposition is a good word where things are either look out of place or there's um something graphically uh uh um that helps to separate that element from something else um, I find myself oftentimes edges are a concept I keep coming back to both mm -hmm. in my own photography and teaching photography, where if I'm, you know, as photographers, we're oftentimes trying to um, create separation between the elements of our image in our image. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah. one of the easier ways to do that is oftentimes is working near the edges of the forest or a field of flowers. So you can create that 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 degree of separation between things or even oftentimes it's the edge of a well not the edge of a cliff necessarily but yeah. but but the edge of a of, of a place so you can um uh, uh um um have differentiation between the different parts of the photograph you want to do so i think edges are a wonderful concept to keep coming back to um into the brain of when you're working with, with landscapes and things like that to photograph. Yeah. A couple of your images that are coming to mind uh, from your book, as you're talking about edges are uh, there's one of a tree in the, in a bunch of fog and it's, I, I can't remember the name of the tree off the top of my head, but it's a pine and it's all gnarly and everything. And, and you talk about how it was just this perfect moment of the fog coming through and the tree is on the edge of sort of, I, I guess, a cliff. Uh, and that fog just put, gave that perfect backdrop so that you could make that tree more of a distinct subject. That's a perfect example. So two yeah. things there in terms of edges, both the, the, that tree uh, uh, was on the edge of a cliff, giving it some separation. Um, but even so, there would have been rocks and stuff a little ways behind it. And so it didn't have full separation, but the fog coming in 
creating the edge so that the tree didn't have anything else to distract from it really helped to bring out the edge of the tree. So yeah. that's a wonderful way to think about edges in a couple of different contexts uh, with, with one, with one image. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great example. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you spend a lot of time out in the field. I'm curious, you know, do you typically go out for multiple days at a time or do, is it sort of like whenever you have the chance and the weather, when, if the weather's cooperating, you get to go out and, uh, so that could be daily or, or do you mostly try to plan sort of extended time out so that you can kind of get into the zone when you're out there? Uh, variable. Um, there's, I, I definitely pick and choose uh, windows of time when there's more interesting conditions, whether that's picking fall color or storm rolling through or things like that. Like rarely would it be that, you know, on a bright, sunny, clear day that I would roll into Yosemite and shoot. Not to say that great images couldn't be had on that kind of day. It's certainly good. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just pick and choose kind of the more um, uh, windows when I think something is slightly more, more compelling. And that could either be just a day or if I'm my druthers, yeah, I like longer windows of time yeah. uh, where I can either get into the backcountry. I love backpacking or spending time. I actually just spent four days skiing out uh, 12 miles to the rim of Yosemite Valley in Ooh. a crazy snowstorm where I dumped like 14 inches and spent four nights out there Ooh. in and amongst the clearing storms. And it was awesome. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was super killer and great weather and, and intense and nobody around. It was just a wonderful experience. So I, I really, for me, the experience uh, is, is so much as much a part of the photography. So, yeah. you know, one of the ways I like to explain to people, like I, I, I don't go out into nature because I'm a photographer. I'm really a photographer because I love being out in the natural world. Yeah. And so um, that, that really drives it. And, and, and I, you know, there's plenty of times I might go out for a trip with all my camera gear and not even, not even take a picture. Yeah. Um, cause just things didn't line up or didn't come together or whatever. Like I don't feel necessarily compelled to have to, um, I'm just happy to be out there and, and experience the conditions. Now, ideally, I mean, not to get me wrong. I, I love it when everything, when the lights pop in and it's beautiful and my heart starts racing and even does now thinking about those opportunities, it yeah. gets me so, you know, enthusiastic and fired up and the adrenaline running. I love those, those, those moments, but I, I get plenty of wonderful uh, satisfaction as well, even if I haven't captured uh, uh, great images. So it, it's uh, it's all the it's all the above. Yeah, and sometimes you know it doesn't make a good image, right? And it's almost better just to enjoy the moment when when you're there. It doesn't necessarily make a good composition or a good image, but it doesn't dis detract from the fact that it's a wonderful nature experience that you can have. That's exactly right. And that's a, you know, that's a really good point. I got to just for full disclosure, like my, 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 my wife might beg to differ here because it's taken me a long time to get to that point. Like when light, you know, years ago would just be going off like crazy. I'd be like, Oh my God, I, gotta, I should be able to take a picture. I got to get a picture. You know, it's so crazy and beautiful. You know, and now I can just sit back and, and enjoy that moment and, and, uh, you know, maybe not a hundred percent still in the back of my mind. I'm like, well, I'd like to be able to photograph something killer in these conditions, but, right. <laughs> but uh, I think it's really important to be able to not get so caught up in that moment. You still got to be able to enjoy the moment, even if it's not just about capturing the image. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, 
So I do have a question about family because I, I have a young family as well. And so I'm curious, has it ever been challenging for you to balance, you know, family life and getting out to photograph? And uh, do you ever bring them with you or do you find that to be too distracting? Um, you know, the way the way I've approached photography, the way it's kind of taken come into my life, you know, I and, and part of this because I, I I love being a father and, and a husband and, and, and kind of the home life. You know, that's why I never really really wanted to be in the field 200 days a year, you know, like a lot of yeah. photographers. I'm not saying that wouldn't be fun. Like I love being in the field, but there's just too many of the things that I still really are important to me that I really enjoy. Um, and so it, it, it has had an impact probably on my photographic trajectory and, and, and what I do, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. Um, I don't, when I'm, when I'm really shooting, my family's not typically with me. Like if we go on a family camping trip or something like that. I've always got my gear and, and we do sometimes, you know, their work our our itinerary so that I might be near a place that I can go run out and photograph and try to do that. But I, I really try not to make that the, the, the main focus of it because I really want to be out there with, with, you know, with, with my family. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, I guess now I think about that. There's plenty of times I'm with them that, you know, I know something's nearby, you know, in the evening, I grab my gear and go run off. So we, we do try to incorporate those things to some degree together. But the majority of, of more heavy photographic trips I do, I, I do not just without my family, but alone in particular, just because I, I don't, it, it, it's not always easy to be around other people when I'm trying to photograph and have the experience in nature that I most appreciate. Mm, I couldn't agree more. I'm the same way. Um, I, I really struggle with this actually, because, um, you know, when I'm out doing photography like you, I want to be alone with nature. It's a totally different experience than even if I'm with a good friend doing photography, it's just, uh, you know, even if they're a photographer, it's still a little distracting, you know? Um, and I, it often will bother me to run into other people when I'm out, when I think I'm going to be spending the day alone out in the wilderness and I happen to cross paths with another person. I'm always kind of bugged by that. <laughs> and I feel bad because, you know, on the other hand, I'm like so glad they're out enjoying nature too. Right. You know, and as we were saying earlier, uh, you know, in order for us to um, properly take care of the planet and hopefully reverse course on what we've been doing to it in terms of consuming and consuming uh, and not putting back. I, I think we do need more people who truly are connecting with and having respect for nature. Uh, it's even one of the reasons why I wanted to create outdoor photography school was to help people connect with nature through their photography. But I, but I then also find myself in this sort of conundrum where I'm like, okay, I want to, uh, figure out how to encourage and support and inspire people to get outside so that this health, healthy relationship is developed with nature um, among, you know, greater parts of, of society. Um, but then I'm also, you know, gets me thinking like, well, okay, well, then more people are spending time outside. Doesn't that also ultimately lead to its destruction through overuse? And so it ends up being this like catch-22 situation. So I wonder... I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's a big question. Um, <laughs> um, 
And uh, and just to backtrack for one second, I'd say that that, that I want to sound totally antisocial. Like I really do like people. Like I really yeah. <laughs> and I love teaching workshops and I put on music events for hundreds of people. Like I really enjoy that. Yeah. But at the same yeah. time, when I'm out having a, an experience in the natural world, I I, 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 there's more gratification and I see more and I'm more productive when there aren't folks around. So it's kind of all of the above. Um, back to your, your, your question. Uh, that's, that, that is, that's a conundrum. Like that's a tough one in that, you know, you can, people, you can love a place to death. And I guess Yosemite can be a, a perfect example of that where, uh, sometimes the visitation is so high that it has a detrimental impact on on the natural world there and the ecosystem. Yeah, um, I think that overall, the more people that have experiences in the natural world is a positive thing. Like you're mentioning, like that's a good thing, and and people uh, from those experiences will hopefully become more connected and do things. Uh, you know on behalf of the natural world, whether that's donating to a conservation organization or volunteering for the local nonprofit or land trust or something like that. Um, the way to help mitigate or minimize maybe that that impact of more people getting out there is, again, just knowledge and information, how they can interact with the natural world and do so in the least impactful way. Yeah. And, and, and also knowing what, what their, what their impacts are when they're out there. So, um, you know, there's, there's this big thing and I don't know if it's parks out East, but I know in a lot of parks out West, there's this big um, issue with rock stacking where people are mm -hmm. just like, mm -hmm. you know, all over the place, stacking rocks and leaving them there. And they think it's kind of a cool thing to do outdoors in the, in the, in the natural world, but not only it actually has effect, has effect on the, on the critters that living in the rocks and, and right. it's, it's, it's changing around the whole ecosystem. And it just has a visual impact for everybody else after them that may or may not want to see that. And right. so like the, the, the people having um, the perspective of, of their own actions, um, but then also how those actions affect other people that are trying to have experiences in the natural world is important. You know, drone yeah. flying is another example of that. Like, I have nothing against drones. I think they're some of the most incredible imagery. Uh, it's phenomenal stuff. But I don't like hearing a drone when I'm out in the backcountry of Yosemite. Not just because it's it's right. intrusive for me, but it's also illegal. Like, you know, right. you're not allowed in the national park. So aside from the fact that it's just, you know, I've had them follow me sometimes. Like, I'm out paddling somewhere. Oh, wow. and a drone following me. That's, that just pisses me off, right? That's just really, yeah. really intrusive. And so... Um, uh, people just being aware of, of their impacts on other people and being respectful is is is, is important. Now, I'm trying to think of your original question, and that was how do we balance people's um, uh, uh, introduction and experiences in the natural world with with doing the right thing, right? That was kind of the original. And, well, and in overuse, like you know, we want more people to be spending more time outdoors, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, but eventually those play, those spaces will get overused in some way. And so how yeah. do we, how do we balance that? And, you know, it could be maybe through more having more protective uh, measures in place, you know, or more designated areas. And um, I don't know, I don't really, I don't have an answer yeah. to it. It's something and, that. I, and nor, I, yeah. nor do I, I mean, that is, that is an issue. I mean, I, obviously I mean, I'm mean, right in the heart of it at Yosemite with how much visitation there is and this, you know, the whole, um, 
you know, horsetail fall phenomenon and the lunar rainbows and things like that, where just mass people come out and they all trample the same areas and they're trying to figure out ways to manage it um, and to lessen that impact. And so I, I, there, there are folks that, that are far more, um, uh, have a lot more experience and, and knowledge about how to um, manage that greater impact on places. But I think that is what's necessary is the thought process to say, okay, we, you know, we are trying to get more people engaged. Well, how can we do it, you know, in, in, in the least impactful way on the ecosystem. And so that's, you know, managing where they're walking, not walking out, you know, millions of trails to the meadows. So you direct everyone's traffic to certain places so they can have an experience, um, but they're not trampling, you know, whole ecosystems and then having the proper signage out there to teach about it. And then hope people read the signage. Don't just jump over it, jump over the fence and walk where they're not supposed to, which happens a lot. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, just to to go back on to something you said earlier about your your ski trip that you just had, which sounds amazing. So, you know, you have a lot of experience in the wilderness, in the backcountry. Uh, what do you think are some skill sets that you've acquired over the years that you think someone who's new to exploring the backcountry should become familiar with before they check out? Hmm. Interesting. I've never been asked that question. Um Huh. <laughs> I don't even know what the answer to that question would be. To be honest with you, like, I, 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 I've never thought about it, and I've never thought about not being terrible. I guess um, confidence in in your gear, so that you know that you know your tent and your sleeping bag and your stove and all that kind of stuff is is operational and you can use it properly and, and, and um, uh, uh, you know, you're not gonna get yourself in any kind of funky situation where um, you know, that's, that's either uncomfortable or, you know, on the verge of dangerous. Um, Right. uh, Maybe doing shorter trips to start. Like Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of thinking out of the box here. Like I know that, 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 you know, my, son's first backpacking trip we only walked like a mile and a half might have been across our meadow you know the other side of the meadow and just set everything up there in camp so you know you can start with smaller steps just to kind of get your feet wet and comfortable and sleeping outside in the tent with the noises around or the not noises on some people have a harder trouble sleeping when it's quiet than when there's cars and things like that on the street so so it's different it's different (laughs) for everybody but uh getting some level of, of comfort so that when you go a little bit further back you're not kind of freaked out like you can enjoy the experience uh, and then maybe the other thing is that is that uh some folks i think when they when they backpack um push themselves maybe a little too hard like they got to cover mm. that nine miles they got to get to the next spot or whatever and and uh when people when i'm out with my with my gear oftentimes people ask where are you going i'm like i don't know i i don't even know i got i got i got everything i need to live on my back and I'm going to go yeah. wherever I end up and that's where I'm going to be. And that's where I'm going to be content. And, uh, and having that kind of philosophy of like, wherever you are, it's cool. And you're going to have a great time and you're going to enjoy it. And you're going to have a good experience and not trying to push yourself. So you're so exhausted uh, by getting to spot that you're cramping that night and can't walk the next day and you're not enjoying yourself. So really yeah. organizing the trip so that it's uh, an enjoyable experience. Um, yeah. That I don't makes know if that's sense. helpful at all, but that was yeah. Yeah. And, 
and have some alternatives so that if you don't get to your destination or you take a side trail, you know, um, all that's all okay in yeah. the plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Being able to adapt and and, and yeah. not be yeah. disappointed or things like that all fall into the same same thought process. Yeah. And uh, just a, a follow up question on that. Um, how do you protect your your camera gear, especially when you're in such uh, severe weather conditions and you're camping and you don't really have a like a dry. I mean, hopefully you're dry inside your tent, but, you, you know, do you have any ever have any camera issues with that or with your batteries getting, you know, drained really quickly in the cold weather or stuff you like know, that? Yeah, I mean, kind of all of the above uh, have always been issues over time. Certainly battery uh, life in cold weather is hard. In fact, I've had that kind of issue on that last little trip I was talking about and had to kind of had to be really um, uh, uh, diligent and careful with both what I was shooting and then even looking at the image. I hardly reviewed any of the images when I was out there because I, you know, I didn't want to lose any battery to be able to take the images, um, which is kind of unfortunate. It's really nice to look at stuff when you're out there. In terms of yeah. keeping gear dry, that is always an issue because I love going out in the storms. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just, it's just fun for me. And, and when there's really dynamic conditions for, you know, I've got different setups now, really, I've got a, a, a pretty bomber dry pack that I can put all my camera gear in if necessary. Um, it's more of an issue when things get wet and they fog up and having little, right. you know, desiccators and things like that. Knock on wood. I'm doing it as I'm talking to you. I haven't had that issue yeah. when I've been in the back country for a while. Um, but it always, you know, it's always in the back of your head. Um, and you just got to find a system that, that that works individually for how far you're going and what you're trying to do. But it's that, that can be a bit challenging when you're when you're combining backpacking gear and photographic gear. And there's no way to yeah. go lightweight when you're combining both those two things. Yeah, no way. <laughs> how, <laughs> how, how much weight are you typically packing for a trip like that? Like the one that you just did? So I, I just recently uh, I built a pulk which is a sled oh, to nice. tow behind yeah, me when nice. I'm skiing. So I used to carry like, you know, 50 pounds or so on my back. And that's skiing in funky conditions is a bit much. And I'm, you know, as, as, yeah. as my years are moving on and like, I just, it's, it's a little dicey. And I, you know, I felt like a voice, I, if I'm off trail and I fall over in a weird position, I might turtle myself there and not be able to get right. back on my back. <laughs> it's been a little sketch a few times. And so uh, I'd always wanted a more, convenient way or comfortable way to do it and i just researched you know pulks basically and i found this great diy design i built my own and it's awesome and so i can carry a little bit more weight so on this last trip i probably had went out there with 65 pounds uh in, in a sled um and i could ski out there really efficiently uh and safely and i was able to carry more gear because it wasn't just yeah. on my back so it was safer so i also had yeah. snowshoes and i had extra fuel and I didn't go super lightweight. Like I brought the extra jacket. And so I was way more comfortable. And my That's family right. was happier because I was safer. And right. uh, <laughs> and it was easier for me to get around. Like I, I couldn't believe how efficient it was. Although, you know, it, it all depends on the conditions. Skiing out in 16 inches of fresh snow with it was rough uh, with, the, yeah. with, the, with the sled. But still the overall, the amount of the efficiency uh, to carry that kind of gear was, was fantastic and allowed me to do it. Uh, in a much better way. When I'm when I'm generally backpacking, you know, I've got like ultra lightweight backpacking gear that probably weighs 15 pounds, and you know, and then all my camera gear, which weighs double that, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and then food and stuff. So usually it's like in the 40 to 50 pound range, something. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That's a lot. 
It's a fair amount. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I could, I would, I, I love the idea of like doing a long through hike without back, without camera gear and going ultra lightweight and like backpacking with 15 or 20 pounds. That just sounds unbelievably fun. It sounds like you could run it, doesn't it? Yeah, right. yeah totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. One of my dreams is to take is for my son before his high school is done to hike some long through hike, like a John Muir trail or something like that together as an experience. Oh, and right. that would give the opportunity to do some kind of more ultra lightweight backpacking. It's just hard to yeah. imagine right now doing anything out there in the backcountry and not having my, my camera gear. It's just, that's when I know the mountain lion would like walk right in front of me or the, right. you know, <laughs> or have the most epic conditions ever. Right. Here's my little iPhone shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 So uh, Yosemite is a, is a prime historical example of the power of art to, you know, inform and influence the protection of an area. Um, and, you know, how it was used to get the Yosemite grant in place and then its eventual national park designation. So what ways do you think photographers today uh, can use their images to advocate for for conservation? And do you think we should be taking pictures of the beauty that remains or of the destruction that's <laughs> present? Huh. Uh, well, as a last part, all of the above, uh, I think it's important yeah. to both document the intact natural places and what's out there, but also to fully document everything that's going wrong. So, so both those things are, are, are critically important. Uh, your question delves into a really, I think, critically important topic that, that, that uh, probably not enough time on this podcast for me to dive into because it really is, 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 is ultra important to me. Um, and that is, uh, uh, photographers, um, responsibility to conservation in, in my mind. And, and uh, it, it might make sense to backtrack for a second, put this in context, because I'm not one to know tons of photographers that are out there. But when we're at the tail end of, of doing the book, the publisher wanted me to have more of a social media presence uh, to get it out there, mm-hmm. something I've never been barely involved with. I, I really have a paltry social media following and don't know it that much. But in doing so, I started looking at what's out there. And there's a few things that really struck me. One, which was how many people say on Instagram, or whatever, have photographer as their tagline, like insane mm-hmm. numbers. And then how many yeah. of those people have insane numbers of followers, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of followers, whatever. Yeah. And then, and then to be honest, I feel like kind of across the board, the quality of photography would vary from super epic photography to, you know, some oh, pretty good photography. Um, but some of the things that struck me the most in, in looking at some of those posts and how many people had stuff out there was how rare the narrative with the images spoke to anything conservation oriented. It was so oftentimes like, oh, I had to, you know, do this and this to get there. And I waited all night and then the storm just cleared and epic conditions, this and that. And I flew all over the world to get it and all these kinds of things. And, and, uh, and it just, it it felt exploitative to me. And I'm like, God, there are so many people out there. There needs to be more folks that are saying, you know, like Paul Nicklin, man, that guy is just an unbelievable, brilliant photographer, conservationist. Um, I just feel like there's gotta be more people out there that, that are using their photography and, and talking about the narrative of what important conservation is. And, and uh, yeah. there are plenty, there are obviously there's a lot of folks that do it, 
Um, uh, I'd like to see a lot more that do it. I think there could be just a, a, a huge impact um, because there's such a far reach for photographers right now, especially through social media um, and other outlets. And um, it's it's certainly something that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, and I'm starting to work on some ideas and hopefully some really tangible programs to help work through that very question of how to mm-hmm. help photographers do more for conservation. Um, and I feel it's a responsibility, like we talked about earlier, you know, as, human- as humans, we all depend upon the natural world, you know, to clean our air, to clear the, to, 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 to purify the water, um, for all the cycles that we depend upon. And, and even beyond that, it's now very well known, um, in science that, that, that mentally and psychologically, the natural world has incredibly, uh, positive impacts on on human psyche and and um it's even being um 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 uh, uh, a, a prescription like kids are being prescribed having time out in nature to deal with right. adhd and all sorts of other stuff hypertension um and so we know we need it on that level but even beyond that photographers if you're a photographer you're either your livelihood for a living, or maybe just your passion and your gratification lies in photographing natural areas. So it just seems like a no brainer that you are, it's incumbent upon those photographers to do things um, that help preserve it and help other people understand the importance of that conservation. Um, And maybe that's just pie in the sky thought, uh, but uh, it just, it it feels right to me. And as I'm beta testing this on other folks, they, they, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback on some things that we might be able to do to help make it easy for photographers to make those kinds of contributions. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, maybe we could have you on the podcast again and you could talk more about that, uh, you know, once you're a little bit further on uh, with the development of your ideas around that, because it sounds really, really necessary and uh, could have a very, very positive impact. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to, if, uh, if, uh, uh, I gotta get a little further along before I talk too much more about it, but, uh, but yeah, there's some, there's definitely fine. some things in the works and, uh, I would love to be able to come back and, and discuss a little bit further and to give some specific examples of what, uh, what we're looking at doing, what people can do to, to, uh, to, to do their part. Yeah. That sounds excellent. Great. Well, before we wrap things up, are you up for doing a little lightning round? I don't know. Sure. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just uh, any, the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. okay. No overthinking. Okay. So what is your favorite subject to photograph? Uh, birds. All right. Any particular bird? Great gray owls. All right. Nice. Uh, what is one piece of gear you can't live without that's not your camera or tripod? My boots. Ooh, I like that. So you do a lot of camping and backpacking. What's your favorite camp meal? Uh, my own homemade beef jerky. Ooh, nice. Uh, in your opinion, what is the best light to photograph in? Whatever's in front of me. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, m- 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 moody, cloudy, uh, misty, 
is is probably the most dynamic but uh i try to yeah. yeah 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 that sounds good uh why photography because it's a way for me to be outdoors and to share mm-hmm. experiences with people everyone else yep. yeah good and what does connecting with nature mean to you Oh, it's it's just it's kind of my life it's what i enjoy the most i i most passionate it's just the most fun looking at little butterflies on flowers it's just it's a it's 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 so deep rooted in my heart and my psyche that uh uh there's you know i, I wouldn't say there's nothing i enjoy more because i really i love my family but uh yeah uh it's 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 the next best thing yeah. Well, and they're a part of nature too, right? <laughs> That's yeah, well said. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Especially my son. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well, Rob, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so glad that we got to connect and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about your book and your photography and projects and maybe upcoming workshops when they're starting again, what is the best way for them to find you? Yeah, uh, my my website is uh, robhirschphoto.com, um, and you'll probably have it in your in the notes for people to look at. And, and if anybody did want a book, the, the hardcovers uh, all sold out, both fortunately, unfortunately, really fast in the first few months, several thousand of them. But there are a lot of soft covers available. And if anybody wanted one, I love the personal connection with folks. So if you reached out to me, I have them. I could send it out to you and write a personal note in it, which. Uh, to me, I, I really avoid love knowing where my prints are ending up on people's walls and what coffee tables the books are ending up on. So I, I would be more than happy to do that. Uh, and and there's one thing I'd add. So Brenda, I, I wanted to, to to thank you for you know uh, offering this forum. I think both for photographers and your audience, you know, as a as a way to exchange information. It's extremely valuable, and and even more so, you know, taking on folks that. As photographers, that may not be household names or, you know, big social media um, influencers with mass followings and stuff like that. Because there's a lot of folks that fit into that realm that maybe aren't as well known that probably have a lot to add to these conversations. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, I appreciate you taking on, you know, a wide spectrum of folks to to have these dialogues with. And uh, hopefully I said something today that was worthwhile for, for the oh, folks absolutely. that are out there. <laughs> yes, yes, you certainly did. I, I really do appreciate it. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, I'm really excited about the podcast. I hope I hope there are many, many more good conversations like this one that people will enjoy. So yeah, so and I'd be you. happy to give you some other names of folks in the future that I think would be valuable that are both epic photographers and wonderful conservationists that uh, Perfect. would be good, good, uh, good, good, good talk for you. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was super fun and uh, I look forward to, uh, you know, still communicating and connecting more in the future. That sounds great. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rob. And again, you can find out more about his photography and order his book on his website at robhirschphoto.com, which I'll link in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode nine. And again, thank you, Rob, for coming on the show. And thank you, listeners, for sticking around to the end. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. We have Texas-based nature photographer Linda Nickel coming up on the podcast. 
Linda is the host of the Happiness Hour, which is a free weekly photography seminar series that she started as a way of connecting photographers during the pandemic. And shortly after that, we'll have the one and only Sarah Marino on the show to chat about creativity and composition. And I just want to give a huge thank you to everyone who has already left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I read all of them and I appreciate it so, so much. In fact, I wish there was a way I could reply. I just don't know if there's a way to do that yet. The reviews really help others to find out about the podcast. And it also helps with getting guests to come on the show to share their expertise with you. If you haven't left one yet and are enjoying the podcast, it would be so great if you would take a minute to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And I really appreciate it. So thank you. I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll give a tip and answer a couple of your submitted questions. If you have a question you'd like me to answer on a Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in today's episode description or go on over to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and you'll be able to record your short message. And until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.